G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Discussion today is going to be around whether feminist foreign policy and reproductive freedom devalues girls. Now, it might appear from some of the cultures around the world that there is nothing that cannot be sacrificed on the red-hot altars of choice even millions of little girls. Girls who are still growing blissfully in the womb do not yet count as women and appear to be the most likely victims of reproductive freedom. So is there a contradiction here? A massive example of hypocrisy even. Do the feminist icons that are lauded in countries around the world pretend that these little girls do not exist? And what of Australia's foreign aid support for these nations? Well, there is a very famous cover story in the publication called The Economist that noted over a hundred million, that's right, a hundred million baby girls are missing in places like China. And as the National Post has just recently reported in an article reprinted from the Washington Post, these numbers are climbing as well in India. Well, let's talk about the value of girls today. Babette Francis is joining us. Babette is founding member of Endeavour Forum. She's considered an expert on the women's movement at an international level. Babette's a senior fellow in social policy at Macroeconomics. She's also vice president of the Family Council of Victoria and vice president of the Drug Advisory Council of Australia. And always a pleasure to welcome back to 2020 Babette Francis. Hello, Babette. Welcome. Hello, Neil. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Babette. And uh, I know you're in fine form. And when we talk through these issues, this is the passion of your heart. When we're talking about the value of little girls, uh, the truth about numbers being reported, it almost seems unreal to hear some of the things that I was talking about in the introduction there. But uh, overall speaking, Babette, what is the challenge for little girls, not only here in Australia, but right around the world? Well, it's a particular challenge in developing countries like um, India and China, because um, in those countries there is a a cultural preference, a very strong cultural preference for boys. And girls are regarded of much less value. So um, girls are aborted, and even when they're born, they're given inferior nutrition or care. Uh, you know, it's uh, really there are, I think, what they, if they've estimated about 100 million missing girls in China demographically, and about uh, 60 million missing girls in India demographically. This is a tragedy of national proportions. There are going to be a whole lot of um, hundreds of millions of men who will be unable to find um, wives uh, when they're uh, in adult life, and that will lead to a whole lot of other abuses like um, uh, sex slave trading and so on. It's, It's really... 
a, a national and international tragedy. When we're talking cultural positions here, and of course you're coming from a place of authority, talking about especially things that happen uh, in the uh, those nations, uh, uh, Asian nations uh, like India and then Pakistan. A little of your background for a moment, Babette, as uh, as we talk about how you can discuss these things uh, with a level of authority. Well, uh, I was born in India and I lived there for 22 years, nearly 23 years before I met my Australian husband on a ship going to London and we got married in London and came back to live in Australia. But to describe the situation in India, and and here this is where I'm a great uh, critic of so-called multiculturalism, Uh, India is about the most multicultural country in the world. There are uh, more religions and uh, um, uh, various codes of conduct that you can possibly imagine. You know, it's a microcosm of multiculturalism, as you like to call it. Now, there's a very strong preference for boys in India, and this applies not just to the Hindu and Muslim communities, but it even extends to the Christian community. And the reason for that is uh, cultural tradition that an adult son is expected to look after his elderly parents whereas an adult daughter gets married off and she goes off to her husband's family and has no particular responsibility towards her uh, aging parents. This is quite different to Australia, where usually aging parents are looked after by a daughter. More often than not, they're looked after by a daughter rather than a daughter-in-law. But in India, the tradition is that a grown-up son will look after his adult parents. So there's a very strong uh, son preference in India. And this leads to uh, baby girls getting a very inferior treatment, both in the womb where they're aborted and even after they're born where they get inferior nutrition, inferior education, inferior everything. So, Babette, what do you say when you're addressing Australian audiences about these issues? Because... Uh, people might look across the seas and say, well, that's a long way away from here. We don't do that in Australia. Uh, therefore, uh, we can treat some of these other issues uh, on a different level. I mean, reproductive uh, freedoms and such things. What do you say to Australians who might be saying, well, that's happening in India, but uh, doesn't happen in Australia or does it? What are your thoughts? Uh, Well, I think it does happen in Australia because I think we've got virtually abortion on demand. So there's uh, clearly a certain amount of sex selective abortions going on. Um, I I think uh, in India now it became so bad that they put a ban on the use of ultrasound to identify the sex of the baby uh, because a lot of uh, parents were aborting their uh, female uh, unborn babies. Um, but it goes on here because we've got virtually abortion on demand all over Australia. So I imagine there are quite a few um, sex selective abortions, particularly among some of our um, ethnic communities, you know, some of the Asian um, immigrants to this country. What do you say to those feminist icons? Uh, when I say icons, uh, really anyone on the left side of politics that wants to be elected at all uh, virtually signs up to an agreement to be pro-abortion and uh, supporting this idea of uh, of this uh, level of reproductive freedom. Uh, what, do you, what are your thoughts about uh, Australia's attitudes and how these might be influenced by some of the things that are happening overseas? 
Well, I think the feminist uh, movement is completely hypocritical about abortion because they won't acknowledge that abortion has uh, selectively impacted on uh, the girl babies in the womb. You know, the, in fact, feminists have defended this. They've said if a mother wants to abort her baby because it's a, it's a female uh, fetus, she should be allowed to do that. You know, they're completely committed to abortion on demand for any reason or even no reason at all, you know, just because of a, a whim, because it may be interfering with a, uh, you know, a holiday playing golf that you've planned or something as trivial as that. So the feminists are complete hypocrites on this subject. They don't care how many um, uh, girl babies are aborted. Uh, to them, the uh, the important issue is abortion on demand for any reason or no reason at all. Okay, and the numbers are mind-boggling, aren't they? Uh, this, uh, when you're talking 100 million, uh, China, uh, growing numbers towards that and perhaps no one knows the real numbers at all uh, India or China but uh, when we start to use that sort of level 100 million 63 million uh, these are mind-boggling figures that uh, that perhaps need to be reflected on just a little more deeply uh, yes it is quite uh, alarming because the normal ratio of at birth is there are between 104 and 106 boy babies for every 100 girl babies. That's what naturally happens if you don't interfere with abortion. But what's happening in India, for example, I've read horrifying figures that in some uh, states there are 100 boy babies born for 60 girl babies. You know, that's an alarming difference. You know, the ratio should be a 104 to 100. Uh, boy versus girl, but here we've got a ratio of 100 to 60. It's it's really frightening. Uh, Babette, when we talk about these cultural issues uh, in nations like India and uh, the preference for boys over girls, if you're going to somehow or other remedy the uh, the way that there is a, you know, a difference in the numbers, uh, perhaps is that something where there's a cultural education required there? Uh, Obviously, when you're talking populations the size of China or the size of India, uh, it's not easy to turn around a ship that big and uh, and change things overnight. But is there a solution that comes with levels of education about the value of girls? Well, the Indian government is trying desperately. It has um, banned uh, the use of ultrasound for identifying the sex of babies because um uh, what happens is that the girl babies are aborted, but um, this still goes on sort of undercover. You know, it's the um, attending doctor will say, well, I had to do an ultrasound to uh, determine the, the health status of the fetus. Uh, he's supposed to be, he's, he's forbidden from telling the parents the sex of the, of the fetus, but uh, I'm sure there are ways around this, and so it still goes on. Uh, I think this brings us back again to the whole issue of multiculturalism, which I think is something that needs to be much more widely debated because, you see, the culture in India favors the birth of boy babies because the culture in India is that it's a son that looks after the elderly parents. So, of course, their parents are desperate to have a son. This is what this is their insurance for their old age. Uh, whereas a girl baby gets married and goes off to her husband's family and has no further responsibility for her parents. And this brings us again to the, as I said, the whole issue of multiculturalism. It needs to be far more widely debated. There are 
some good aspects of multiculturalism. You know, I love Indian food and uh, Indian clothes like the sari and so on, but I dislike several other aspects of multiculturalism in India. And when this multiculturalism is promoted, encouraged in Australia, and, uh, you know, doesn't Australia pride itself on being a multicultural nation where people generally uh, live in peace with one another, uh, the promotion of that multiculturalism, and as you say, it brings with it not only the good food, but also these other values. Does that, in fact, uh, have the risk of shaping the Australian values according to those other values that we'd say are not good. What are your thoughts on, oh, on how Australia's influenced? Uh, recently we had an inquiry on multiculturalism in Australia and I put in a submission uh, outlining some of the undesirable aspects of multiculturalism. You know, I, I referred to gross abuses such as um, uh, polygamy in, uh, in Islam and uh, uh, the burning of uh, widows on the funeral pyre of their husbands in, in Hinduism. I referred to the caste system in India. These are things that I know from, from personal experience. And I said, these are um, uh, un- unfortunate aspects of multiculturalism which need to be people need to be warned about. You don't just promote multiculturalism in capital letters as if it's, an, it's unalloyed bliss. And, uh, you know, it was really funny. My submission was rejected. <laughs> I've never heard of a, a submission, uh, on, you know, when, they, when a government body invites submissions, I've never heard of a submission being rejected. No. I mean, they could have said they don't agree with it, but they simply rejected it and refused to put it on their website. <laughs> Maybe they were completely unaware that some of those things were happening around the world and had a risk of happening here in Australia. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. What are your thoughts about the value of girls, the value of Aussie girls and the value of girls in other nations where uh, there are some significant threats to the value of girls uh, because of cultural issues and various uh, things that actually bring a devaluing of girls? 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Uh, Babette Francis is our guest, founding member of Endeavour Forum, considered an expert on the women's movement at an international level. Babette, as we continue this conversation, uh, it's not just reproductive freedoms uh, that devalue girls. You brought into the conversation in our opening segment there the issue of multiculturalism, and there are other things that are in multiculturalism that give feminism uh, this tag of hypocrisy quite significantly because uh, what people think about the modern feminist, uh, somehow or other, there's a lot of things that happen that go opposite to what you think a feminist should think. Let's talk about controversies over uh, the dress of some women uh, from different cultures. Uh, what are your thoughts on issues to do with, say, the hijab? Uh, Neil, I, keep complete, uh, I remain completely amazed every day that our feminists don't, talk, don't take up the plight of women in Muslim countries. They're tremendously oppressed in every way. Uh, the Quran says a woman is, you know, worth only half, uh, half the value of a man in several, uh, judicial areas. But also, uh, the recent, uh, promotion by a Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade of the hijab. Now, the hijab may be acceptable to some 
Muslim women as a symbol of, um, as a, uh, as to, to enhance their so-called modesty. Uh, I don't agree that it's immodest, that one is being immodest if one doesn't wear a hijab. But anyway, if that's their thinking, they're welcome to it. But there are a lot of women in Iran, for example, who reject the hijab. There was one brave woman who uh, took off her hijab and waved it as a defiant flag, um, you know, uh, objecting to this um, imposition of this uh, repressive garment on women. And she's been arrested and put in prison. And our stupid Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is promoting the hijab as a fashion accessory. I mean, you, you would think next thing they'll be promoting striped pajamas, you know, which the concentration camp victims were, were uh, forced to wear in Nazi concentration camps. How blind are they, is our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to the oppression of women in countries like Iran? I think when it looks as though it's just a religious symbol, uh, that's the way you dress religiously when you are Islamic, uh, that somehow or other there's given this level of freedom to promote that. But you're taking this a little bit deeper and you're saying that uh, there is a sense in which uh, women are being oppressed by the expectation that is upon them that they ought to wear that. Now, of course, there's going to be differences, aren't there, Babette? Uh, Some women in Islam are going to be uh, saying this is our right to wear the hijab, uh, whereas others will say uh, we are being forced to wear the hijab. What's what's the truth in all of that uh, from your assessment? Well, I personally think the hijab is a an oppressive garment. I would hate to have to be dressed like that all the time. Even our Catholic nuns have discarded that type of clothing. It just hampers your your freedom to move around um, actively, uh, and it shouldn't shouldn't be a compulsory form of garment. If some women want to wear it for so-called modesty or religious reasons, that's their right. But the point is that it's made compulsory in, in countries like Iran, and they have a so-called morality police roaming the streets and um, uh, arresting women who show a bit of hair under their hijab or don't wear their hijab uh, correctly. And I think that's where our feminists are hypocritical and our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is outrageous in promoting a garment which is used as a, as a method of oppressing women in some Muslim countries. You know, I remember walking through some streets in uh, in old Cairo in Egypt and a guide was pointing out to me, do you see all of those uh, slatted uh, window covers uh, and telling me how in Egypt uh, it used to be, and I'm not sure whether it still is, uh, the practice of keeping your girls safe and not even allowing anyone to see through a window, so windows uh, with significant covers on them, uh, to protect children, uh, protect young girls uh, from men who might uh, come and uh, with potentially uh, uh, ideas of abduction and uh, of, uh, of taking those girls away. So of protecting girls, protecting women from men. Now, what this does, and I'll get your thoughts here, Babette, But it raises the issue of men and self-control because when women have to protect themselves with the sorts of modesty garments that they'd wear, isn't there an issue here with the men who they are trying to protect themselves from? Absolutely. I think it's the responsibility of the state to protect women regardless of uh, whether they're wearing so-called modesty or not. Uh, It's absurd that women have to be 
kept indoors or protected by male guardians or have to wear certain types of clothing to protect them from uh, rape or assault by uh, by other men. This is an outrageous state of affairs and it's the responsibility of uh, the country's government, the national governments in these countries to protect women so that they can move around as freely as men and also dress freely uh, in accordance with uh, normal standards of, of dress. One should not have to, women should not have to cover uh, every curl on their head or um, uh, 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 what even cover up their faces in a, in a burqa as they have to do in Saudi Arabia. That, that is just imprisoning women in, uh, in the totalitarian ideology of Islam. Actually, Islam doesn't even require all this. Some of this has grown up as a kind of cultural, tribal, um, uh, ideology, and it's it's uh, long past the time when we tried to eliminate it from uh, the international scene. And I'm astonished that our uh, feminists don't aren't more active about about this. You know, it's left to uh, women women like me who <laughs> who are speaking up for the women oppressed in Muslim countries. Our feminists are completely silent on the subject. You know, they criticise Tony Abbott for being sexist because he looked at his watch while Julia Gillard was speaking, and yet they um, uh, ignore the gross abuses of the basic human rights of women in Muslim countries. Reflect a few moments here, Babette, on what brings about this need for this level of modesty clothing coming from these nations, because in Australia, as in other Western nations, where there's been a Christian foundation and men have been taught uh, self-controlled. In fact, if we were looking at uh, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, about uh, adultery and uh, and uh, uh, the idea of coveting your neighbour's wife, those sorts of things that have actually formed part of the culture of what Western men have been able to exercise as self-control when it comes to women, these weren't present in some of these other nations, and therefore there is a religious foundation to how men think about women here. Well, I th- I, uh, if there is a religious foundation, I think we can, uh, you know, recognize it to some extent. I'm not saying women should dress immodestly. Uh, one d- doesn't wear a bikini wandering down Collins Street. You know, that is inappropriate dress. But on the other hand, I don't uh, think that a, a woman in, say, a halter top uh, dress and shorts uh, is inviting you know, sexual assault. You know, if the weather's very hot, you should be entitled to dress uh, in uh, uh, minimal clothing, you know, uh, respectable but minimal clothing, if that's what the climatic conditions are. Uh, I, I think um, men need to be educated to recognize this and just uh, promoting a culture that encases women in black from head to foot and covers covers up everything but her her eyes and often even only one eye is, is uh, exposed is just outrageous. It's a denial of the basic human rights of women. Uh, on balance, Babette, when you talk about a, a balance between dressing modestly and dressing because you're under an oppression to dress a certain way, uh, which way do you think uh, the balance goes with uh, the women who wear uh, that uh, modesty hijab-style clothing here in Australia and overseas? Uh, what, which way does the balance go? 
Uh, Neil, I think most people with common sense and uh, with a, even a minimal moral sense know where the balance is. You know, a woman, uh, let's say a Western woman, even walking down our city streets with a, a halter line, neckline and very deep cleavage, you know, that is not modest, it's not tasteful and it's not appropriate for uh, walking down a city street. On the other hand, uh, a bathing suit is appropriate on the beach. So uh, people with uh, an ordinary, normal sense of morals or common sense know where the balance, balance is. I don't believe the balance lies in uh, forcing women to cover every every curl on their heads and hide their hair and uh, or hide their faces in a in a burqa or a hijab. That is simply oppressive. If some women want to dress like that, that is their right. I've, I believe very few do. But uh, the other aspect that should be dealt with is this is how this also uh, impedes women's health. You know, Australia has a very healthy sports culture where we encourage both girls and boys to be involved in sport, and that an activity, physical activity, is important for uh, men's and women's health, the girls and boys' health. Now, encasing women in restrictive garments like the hijab or the burqa has a direct impact on their health because they don't get enough exposure to to daylight, to a bit of sunlight for vitamin D, and they're restricted from moving freely, uh, they're restricted from sports activities. All this contributes to women's ill health. So there's a health issue here as well. Well, I want to invite listeners to join in our conversation. We are just a couple of minutes now out from Vision National News. We'll take some calls after Vision National News. Your thoughts on uh, women and the value of girls. And perhaps here the conversation is obviously about uh, hypocrisy here in the feminist movement. Uh, maybe you're coming from a feminist background yourself, or you call yourself a feminist. Maybe you call yourself a Christian feminist. I wonder whether you'd like to contribute to our conversation today, an interesting conversation on the value of girls and bringing to light some of the hypocritical and uh, very contradictory things that happen not only here in Australia but around the world which might set your thoughts on feminism from a different viewpoint. We're just a minute or so out from the news. Uh, just quickly in the lead up to the news, Babette, when you say that you are a Christian feminist, as many do, uh, what does that look like uh, compared to the sort of militant uh, left-wing feminists that most people see? Uh, Neil, I've given up calling myself a Christian feminist. The word feminist has got such unfortunate connotations that I've really discarded it. And I've been told by, well, my mentor, Phyllis Schlafly, she once commented that calling yourself a feminist puts yourself, um, puts sort of women ahead of, of God. One should really just be a Christian and not attach a label to it because uh, feminism is just... Uh, got too many complicated uh, and unsavory attachments to it these days. Uh, feminism is supposed to be for women's rights, and I am for women's rights, but I'm also for men's rights. And in Australia at the moment, a lot of men's rights and the Babette, we'll need to, to continue this part of the conversation ignored. as we go after the news, just about to go to news. Uh, Babette Francis, uh, let me come back to what we were talking about just before the news. Uh, when we talk about feminism, Promoting yes, women's. Uh, you described me or mentioned the word Christian feminist, and uh, I, I really dislike that appellation. If anything, I call myself a realist, not a feminist, because uh, putting Christian and feminist together 
rather takes away from one's um, what should one say one's uh, recognition of the Almighty. You know, f- feminism is a very restrictive ideology, and I much prefer the word Christian realist to it because I'm also very concerned about the plight of men. I don't know if your listeners are aware that apart from earnings. Men in Australia are doing much worse on all the life indices compared to women. The, uh, uh, boy babies have a higher um, infant mortality rate. Uh, men have a shorter life expectancy. They're far more victims of violence than women are. That would surprise people. But, you know, this violence from other men, of course, but they're both victims and perpetrators. They're, f- they're far more men in our prisons. They're far more men committing suicide. You look at every health indices and you'll find that men do women apart from actual earnings and of course in many cases those earnings are uh, shared with their uh, their wives or their partners so uh, that's really not that significant uh, so uh, i'm i'm really sort of an advocate for men as well men's rights you know someone should be speaking of on behalf of the beleaguered male they do they're doing much worse in education as well at the moment you know there's far more men, women going to universities far more girls succeeding at uh, matriculation level Okay, I like your terminology when we talked about uh, feminists, uh, not the mainstream feminist, uh, not a Christian feminist, but you said a Christian realist. Uh, Is that a a terminology you'd like to see catch on with women's groups and when women talk about uh, where they fit in the the context of of, uh, the feminist arguments? I, I like the word realist rather than feminist. Okay, realist. Let's uh, let's talk about realism because when you talked about all of those dramatic issues with men, are you also uh, labeling blame on feminists for the way that men are suffering in well in Australia and around the world? Uh, I'm not no, I'm not blaming uh, women. I'm I, in Australia and in some western countries I do blame the feminist movement because I, I very much reject the affirmative action in beha- on behalf of women, you know, putting women into jobs in some sort of quota system or uh, deciding you need to have a certain percentage of uh, women in parliament or whatever. I reject that type of um, affirmative action. I'm not blaming women for it. Very often men are the uh, architects of their own <laughs> problems. So, uh, you know, men are responsible as well. They've been in power. Uh, they're in power all over the the world so if they're suffering any problems that's their responsibility but i think we ought to have a realistic look at what is actually happening in societies like australia and men are not really doing that well compared to women but let me ask you about australia's foreign policy i mean we obviously send foreign aid to nations around the world uh, some of them are spending that foreign aid no doubt in areas that we might be concerned about and supporting nations that have policies that are anti-girls anti-women what are your thoughts for uh, australia's they're not position not only anti-women they're anti-christian the issue i'm most concerned about is that uh, we give 47.1 million dollars in aid to pakistan now this is a country that i know about because i've lived in areas of pre-partition india which subsequently became pakistan And Pakistan, um, uh, it it, it not only treats uh, women um, as inferior to men in the sort of Islamic tradition, but it also persecutes Christians to an atrocious rate.
right. Um, I've written an article in Quadrant Online uh, on this issue, and I invite your readers to access that, to Google that. But um, in Pakistan, you know, a Christian girl is kidnapped, a Christian or Hindu girl is kidnapped almost every week. Um, uh, Her abductors uh, force her into a a so-called marriage, and uh, when the parents complain to the police, they say, oh, she went of her own free will and she's converted to Islam. Uh, Once she's, of course, uh, forced into uh, so-called marriage and raped, and once she becomes pregnant, she's trapped. And this is going on on a weekly basis in Pakistan, they estimate that around 700 girls every uh, year are, are kidnapped in, in Pakistan. And we're giving $47.1 million in aid to, uh, to Pakistan. This is absolutely outrageous. Well, it's come to light, hasn't it, uh, since the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. warned member states that backed a resolution condemning Donald Trump's decision about substantial cuts in foreign aid that they received from the US, that there is a certain sense in which there's leverage when you do give foreign aid to draw attention to some of the human rights issues and, as we're talking about today, the value of Christians, the value of girls in nations like Pakistan. What are your thoughts for what Australia perhaps ought to be doing or thinking about with regard to the way that our foreign aid is being spent for nations that, in fact, are uh, doing things that we might ordinarily think are are pretty atrocious. Uh, I I entirely agree with President Trump. He's my hero in this regard. He's uh, cutting aid uh, to uh, countries which violate basic human rights, which persecute Christians which don't treat women fairly and uh, uh, which uh, demonize Israel for all sorts of uh, imagined um, uh, human rights violations while ignoring the the gross human rights violations in a lot of the um, Arab countries and uh, countries like Iran where uh, ordinary uh, men and women don't have um, uh, human rights and women are treated as uh, uh, second-class objects. You know, they they have morality priests roaming around the streets of Iran uh, trying to ensure that women are properly covered up, covered up in quotes. Uh, What about the human rights of these uh, people? Uh, I think Donald Trump is quite right to cut aid to them and to uh, also to, uh, this is maybe a contentious issue for your listeners, but to cut aid to the uh, Palestinian organization uh, because it uh, refuses to negotiate with Israel for a, a two-state solution for peace, but has its ambition to drive every last Israeli into the sea. You know, I think intransigent organizations like that don't deserve uh, foreign aid. And uh, and, uh, as far as Australia is concerned, I think we should immediately cut our uh, aid uh, allocation of $47 million to Pakistan because of its uh, gross violation of um, minority rights. From what I understand uh, from the figures, Australian foreign aid to the Palestinians that you say might be controversial, as I understand it, $436 million dollars. And, uh, well, I, I think I think that should be cut as well because the Palestinians just refuse to negotiate. They, they refuse to recognise the existence of Israel. You know, they uh, Israel's uh, Israel and the United States have uh, through during the terms of various presidents, both Republican and Democrat, have tried to bring the two parties to the negotiating table, but the Palestinians just refuse to negotiate. They consider the existence of Israel to be illeg- illegitimate, and their ambition, as they've said is to uh, drive every last Israeli into the, to drown in the sea. 
Now, why give aid to an organization like that? The other ridiculous thing is that they promote this multi-generational idea of refugees, you know, where there might have been, say, 500,000 refugees in one generation. It's now grown to, to millions because every subsequent generation is regarded as a, in quotes, refugee. This just simply doesn't happen in other countries. You know, for example, in India, when we got refugees from Tibet or Burma or uh, whatever, I mean, they were refugees for one generation, but after that, they either went back to their countries or they integrated into the country where they'd sorted refugees. You don't become uh, refugees for five or six generations, as the Palestinians have uh, claimed they are. Babette, when we talk about foreign aid being used uh, with nations where there are real issues like this, uh, let me uh, you're quoted as saying Julie Bishop, our foreign minister, should really direct her death stare. Uh, and she's renowned for that stare that she has when she's addressing the media. You're saying that she should direct her death stare uh, to this donation <laughs> and other similar ones to it. Uh, she, yes, I, I wrote an article for Quadrant Online saying that Julie Bishop is famous for her death stare, which uh, re- renders her political imp- opponents impotent you know, when she stares at them. Well, she should direct her death stare at some of these... Um, uh, uh, so-called uh, uh, refugee uh, allocations to which Australia is contributing millions of dollars of taxpayers' money, that money would be much better spent uh, on other aid projects which really produce results. All that, all that aid to Pakistan and to the Palestinians is doing is confirming them in their human rights abuses in their, and in the case of Pakistan and in the case of the Palestinians in their refusal to negotiate. Uh, one has never heard of a situation where you have a, as I've said, a multi-generation uh, uh, ladder of refugees. You know, you, normally a refugee either goes back to his own country or integrates into the country where he sought refuge. You know, he doesn't have uh, two or three generations or five generations of refugees after him, all claiming to be refugees. That is just a a ridiculous demographic situation. Uh, Let's bring this back to girls. Uh, We've been talking about the value of girls. Uh, There is one uh, fairly recent report of a 12-year-old Pakistani Christian girl who disappeared in November, uh, was abducted, uh, forced to convert to Islam and marry her abductor. Now, that report apparently, according to her father, this is something that is fairly normal in some in some nations, and, and we look at it and we uh, we wonder how the abduction of a twelve year old to be forced to marry and to convert to another religion. But this is another issue that girls are facing, isn't it? And is it also an example of how girls are devalued or being devalued by even acknowledging that these things are worthy of any level of support? Uh, absolutely. Actually, that case that you mentioned was one faint spark of hope on the horizon. I think it went to the uh, Supreme Court in Lahore, and the judge actually gave some kind of decision that was favorable to the parents. I think this is the first time I've heard 
in Pakistan that there was some tiny measure of justice to the parents and to the the poor girl. But this is happening in Pakistan every week. Uh, a girl working in the fields, a Christian or Hindu girl, is is kidnapped, forcibly uh, married and raped, and once she becomes pregnant, she's trapped, you know. And the parents complain to the police, and the police say, oh, that uh, uh, that, that boy was uh, the son of a wealthy landowner. We can't do anything, you know, and they won't do anything. They're not sympathetic to the plight of uh, minorities. There's a, there's a frightening um, demographic picture in Pakistan. Once upon a time, minorities were about 12.9% of the population. Now they're uh, somewhere around about between 1% and 3%. You know, one wonders what happened to to them. Uh, some of them may have escaped into India, uh, and uh, maybe the Jewish population went to, um, I- to Israel. But it's quite alarming how the minority uh, proportion of the population in Pakistan has alarmingly declined. Uh, when it comes to legal advocacy, and we were talking about, you know, diplomatic uh, levels, uh, foreign aid, those sorts of things, we're talking when we get into those discussions about solutions. And really, is there a sense, Babette, in which if Australia proposes solutions, that we actually help to uh, enculturate a value for girls, a value for women in our own understanding, but if we don't uh, advocate and if we don't uh, diplomatically uh, use the benefit that we give through things like foreign aid uh, that somehow or other we're missing missing the mark here and not giving our own culture real strength uh, I think uh, Julie Bishop could very well make a uh uh, a threat that any aid to Pakistan will, will, in the next budget, be eliminated unless they show concrete steps to improving the plight of not only of, of Muslim girls but of uh, minorities such as Christian and Christians and Hindus in Pakistan. Aid should be conditional on an improvement in the human rights situation in Pakistan. Um, actually, I, I, I think uh, President Trump has. Uh, uh, decided to substantially cut uh, aid to Pakistan. And, you know, the Pakistans are um, sort of demonstrating in the streets against him, almost as if they're entitled to, to uh, foreign aid from countries like uh, the United States and, Aus- and Australia. Where has this become an entitlement? You know, surely we're giving it aid as a, a voluntary gift we give to people, not a, a legal entitlement. But Pakistan is behaving as if they've got a legal entitlement to, uh, to aid from the United States and and, um, and, and possibly they'll do it to Australia if we attempt to cut their foreign aid. And is there a sense in which uh, there's a reluctance to attach strings to foreign aid, the idea that there is an expectation that there'll be change? Uh, what are your thoughts about having strings on that foreign aid? Well, I, I think instead of having strings on aid, we should uh, very um, tightly target our aid to uh, Pakistan, give it to the minorities, you know, give it to the uh, the Christian schools, which are having to function behind high walls and barbed wire, you know, uh, target it very specifically to the embattled minorities, to the ones who are being uh, persecuted, the ones who are being deprived of human rights. You know, I think that is the way we should give our aid. It should be very strictly targeted and controlled. Uh, let's take a call. Darren is in Moranbar in Queensland. Hello, Darren. Welcome along. Hello. Darren, very quickly, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I was sort of looking at the government website, the uh, DFAT government website, 
And I find it very peculiar how the very countries that they list we give aid to are also the countries where they advise us not to go. Uh, so that's just kind of my thoughts on those things. Why would we supply funds for areas where we tell Australians not to go and there's sort of like, how do you get accountability for uh, where we put our money? A, a response from you, Babette, for Darren in Moranbar. I'm sorry, could you repeat Darren's suggestion? Uh, Darren was saying the nations that are receiving foreign aid from Australia are the nations in which uh, there are often uh, the encouragement for Australians not to go, not to travel, perhaps because they're dangerous places. Uh, your thoughts for Darren? Well, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I think uh, it, uh, places like Pakistan and uh, uh, the Palestine uh, the Palestinian areas in Gaza possibly are dangerous for Australians. But that, that's all the more reason why we should uh, cut aid to those countries, because uh, uh, those regimes, because if it's not safe for Australians, why are we, what are we doing propping up those, uh, uh, those governments? Mm. Darren, thank you so much for your call. And let's take one call from Chris in Victoria. Hello, Chris. Welcome along. Uh, yes, uh, good day, Neil and Babette. Yeah, I just want to know, yeah, why do the... Uh People want aid from the infidels, you know. Can't Allah provide for them? And, and also, um, uh, we should uh, do what the, we did to South Africa, you know, regarding apartheid. We, we should ban cricket from India and Pakistan, and you know, because the Hindus are just as thing uh, as the Muslims regarding Christians. And another thing, one more thing, why can't we, when people come here to this country, uh, they do it in their countries, we, we set, you know, make them pay tax. If they want to build mosques, temples, whatever, they should pay a tax to... Uh, uh, practice their religion in this country. Uh, Chris, uh, three very interesting and colourful points that you've made there. Did you catch any of those, Babette? Uh, I, I'd just like to go back to the issue of Pakistan. Pakistan is the country where Osama bin Laden uh, managed to survive for five years in uh, just a few miles away from their military academy. Now, when he was identified by a Pakistani doctor by uh, a vaccination program who did, got blood tests and identified that uh, that was Osama bin Laden and his family, and that enabled the Obama administration to take him out, in quotes, um, the Pakistani government, um, which obviously knew he was hiding there, uh, imprisoned this doctor, and he's still in prison. And I think that's absolutely outrageous. You know, the United States and Australia should not give any aid to Pakistan unless, until that doctor is not only freed but allowed to leave for the uh, United States, you know, where he'll be given sanctuary. This is the outrageous behavior of the Pakistani government. Osama bin Laden lived there with his family and his multiple wives and children and grandchildren uh, a few miles from a military academy in Pakistan, you know, the most wanted um, murderer in the world. Uh, you know, and this is the behavior, and we're giving them $47 million in aid. Mm. Well, uh, we've run out of time. Thank you so much to Chris in Victoria. Uh, I want to point people to the Endeavour Forum website uh, where you can connect with Babette Francis, endeavourforum.org.au. And uh, you can get onto mailing lists, uh, subscribe to uh, a lot of breaking news and commentary on a whole lot of issues that you might never consider. Lots of issues that uh, never even, there's so much that uh, couldn't possibly talk about at all, uh, even on a program like 2020. So uh, endeavorforum.org.au. And Babette Francis, always such a pleasure talking to you, getting your insights, uh, hearing a different perspective than we're likely to hear 
here anywhere and uh, certainly want to appreciate you and uh, point people to that website so that listeners can connect, endeavourforum.org.au. Babette, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today on 2020. Neil, thank you for having me on your program, and may God bless you and your uh, voice, which I hope will spread all over the world. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.